My wife and I uh, took our children out to the West um, last week for a vacation, well, two weeks ago for our vacation, and so um, we decided that we were going to go start first at Zion National Park, and it's an incredible place, and if you've been there, you know. If you haven't been there, I pray that you get to go. Um, but everybody said, hey, if you're going to do it, you need to do this hike called Angel's Landing, and by everyone, I mean the internet. And so um, as we got to the park, Angel's Landing is a hard hike. Uh, it's it's kind of one of these ones where it starts out and you just kind of go and you're like, this is not so bad. And then you get to where you just kind of look up at the side of the mountain and the trail just goes. And that's the first part. Well, we, you know, we're, we're from North Carolina. We've got the Grandfather Mountain and Mount Mitchell and, you know, Linville Gorge. And, you know, don't, don't tell us about hikes. You know, we, we know this stuff. Well, we get to the top part, and if you know anything about Angel's Landing, the Angel's Landing hike goes out to a peninsula of rock over the Zion Valley where one side has a drop of 1,200 shear feet. The other has a drop of 800 shear feet. In many places, you are walking in an area about this wide, and you're holding on to a chain, which was fine if I had gone by myself. But as a father taking my wife and two children who don't tell them I told you this, but they're the not most sure-footed crew of people that you've ever been hiking with. Um, girls tend to hike while they take selfies and tell jokes and sing Miley Cyrus songs. And there's a lot of skipping and things like this while they hike. That's great when the trail is this wide. Not so good on Angel's Landing. And so when we get up there, I realize that about halfway through the park, and it takes you a half an hour to go a half a mile because people are coming down, you're trying to hold onto this chain, there's 1,200 feet this way, there's 800 feet this way. Sometimes there is no chain and you've got to go between places where there's no chain. And, and I became the biggest jerk in the world. It's like, put your phone away! You know, and do not skip! Don't let go of that! Grab onto this! Well, the interesting thing was, there was a sign at the beginning of the hike, and it said, please hike with extreme caution. But there was no sign at the beginning of the hike that said, hike like a dad. Notice that? And I realized when we got off, and everybody's like, well, Daniel was like, was that great? And I was like, no, it was not great. I was like, I would have been fine if I was by myself, but with you guys, I just felt like I was responsible for y'all. And it occurred to me as I was studying this text, and Paul is talking about weak believers and strong believers. In that moment, I was a weak believer. I was a weak believer. I wanted my family to hike my way to appease me, to make me feel better. And I, and I, and I was going to dictate it to them, and they acquiesced. And out of love, they put their phone away. They didn't hike. There was no Miley Cyrus. There was a minimum of Miley Cyrus. Um, you know, and there was a minimum of skipping, and we held on to the ropes. And, and there was a weakness and a strength, and in that moment, they were the strong ones. And they put up with me. And we all got down to the bottom and, and in unity together. Quick note, the National Park Service says that five people have died at Angel's Landing. That is not true. If you go in the local news, someone's died there every other month. So, anyway, all that to be said, we're alive, and here I am, and I got all three children back. But this verse, this whole chapter that we're talking about, is talking about weak believers and strong believers. And the weak believers aren't weak just because they never go to the gym. The weak believers they're talking about here are new believers, people that are new in Christ, people that have just come out of a pagan background. There are people maybe that have not taken the time to study. There are people maybe that don't want to take the time to study. And there are people that haven't grown. 
And so in this context, he's talking to the stronger believers, and he says, listen, you're surrounded in a community here at the Church of Corinth. How are you using the freedoms that you have in Christ to not tear down the church, to not bring disunity to the church, but bring unity to the church to build it up? And he says this directly in verse 1, for it is love, not knowledge, that builds up the church. Now, we're not downplaying knowledge at all. That's not what this is. This is not about love versus knowledge, nor is it about coddling people, nor is it about celebrating ignorance. It is about humble love, pursuing knowledge together so that we might build up the church. Now, in Corinth, what had happened is you can see that there had been a letter that was written, and so this is referring back. And so now as Paul is referring back in this part of the letter to a specific question that they've asked him. And so in this specific question they've asked him, what they're saying is, listen, is it okay to eat meat that was sacrificed to an idol? Well, you and I have never had that problem. I would have, this would be very interesting if someone just, you know, came into my office and said, listen, I've just moved here out of Africa. You know, I see that you have meat. Is any of it sacrificed to idols? And I'm pretty sure that Purdue Farms does not do that. But this is, though this isn't an issue that we struggle with, we've got to come back 2,000 years ago and see what was going on. Because in the community of Corinth, you would have been surrounded by idolatry, both public and private. Publicly, there would have been temples all around that would have been sacrificing to different gods. And that meat would have been offered in three different ways. First of all, part of it would have been burnt for the god. Then part of it would have been portioned off and given to the priests that serve in that temple. And then the rest of it would have been taken to the meat market and sold. Right, Because the whole industry is this whole idea of we're growing these animals, we're going to take them, we're going to sacrifice them, and then what do we do with the meat that is left over? Now, if you went over to someone's house, they would have had their own private little, little shrine or sanctuary there in their home where they would also take and sacrifice meat. And then even before a meal, they would talk about the meat or whatever's on the table, and they would bless it in the name of whatever god or deity they worship. So you really couldn't get away from idol worship. Well, there's two markets then in Corinth. There's the regular meat market. Now, the regular meat market, they just take the animals from the farm, bring them to the market, slaughter them, butcher them. Remember, there's no Amana Whirlpool, you know, GE. There's no refrigerator. We're not keeping this meat. We got to get it. We're going to take it from the market. We're going to go home and cook it, or we're going to sacrifice it, whatever. But that meat had not had, not had anything done to it. Just the meat was, was killed, cut up, sold. That meat was way more expensive than the other market which the other market was the post-temple market. It was the, that was the meat that part of it had been burned, part of it had been given to the priests that served at that temple, and the rest of it then would be taken to the temple, post-temple market, the post-sacrifice market. The post-sacrifice market was the Aldi of the community. It was the place where all the cheap stuff was. And so you had the expensive meat, and then you had the meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And you can imagine now that unfairly this kind of targets poor people. And so he's saying to him, listen, 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 let's think about this first. I'm not saying that you can't do it, but I want to say, what are you doing when you do it? What are you doing when what's going on? So even though this is a foreign topic to us, even though this is a foreign concept to us, Paul is answering this whole idea of, listen, what do you use your Christian freedoms for? Yes, you're free in Christ, and he's going to talk about this even later on in the next couple chapters. And he says, you're free to do everything, but not everything is beneficial. You're free to do everything, but not everything builds up. And so he says, so in the context of that, how are you using your Christian freedom to build up the church? And here we have this context of freedom and love. And how will you act in your freedom 
to love and build up the church. I'm going to let Bob finish the rest of it because he's got a lot to say and so do I. So I'm going to defer to him. I'm so telling Danielle that at the end of that story, Paul said, I got all three children out. Did y'all notice that? No. So I was trying to think of a parallel for this because this is su- such an odd, um, odd situation for us. It's hard to relate. So I had to come up with an imaginary one. I want you to imagine with me two things uh, in order to get yourself into what Paul is dealing with here. Number one, I want you to imagine that you love ice cream as much as Pastor Bob. Okay, so that's not true of very many, but you have to go with me on this. So I, I was doing pretty well until the anniversary, and then we had that favorite Moo Moo chocolate, and then we had leftovers, and then I was, you know, then I, I went to Indianapolis this past uh, c- the couple of days. I was just up there two nights, and uh, Linda made my hotel reservation for me, but right outside the hotel was Freddy's frozen custard. So, I mean, you got to go. You know, when you, Linda said, well, how many times did you go? I said, only twice. You were only there two days. Okay, so, and I was at a a meeting most of the day. So you love ice cream as as much as Pastor Bob. That's number one thing I want you to imagine. Number two is, I want you to imagine the only source for ice cream in Hickory, North Carolina, is the Buddhist temple on Sandy Ridge Road. They make all the ice cream. They sell it to support their ministry. They pray over their ice cream with mantras in their tradition, and they dedicate their ice cream to uh, Buddha, and when they, and they have a, an ice cream festival every time they make ice cream, and then they sell the leftover in the local grocery stores. Okay, so you got it? Now, will you buy ice cream? Yes or no? Like, well, you don't have to answer out loud, but like, will you buy ice cream if you love it that much, and that's the only place that makes it? And second... Whether your answer is yes or no, how do you feel about those who make a different choice than you do? So emotionally, that draws me closer into what's going on here in the first century when Paul talks about meat sacrifice to idols. And just quickly with the text, because it's not only that Paul and I both have a lot to say, we also have, uh, we want to make sure we don't rush our time of communion at the end of the service. So the four things that I think Paul says, I'm just briefly reviewing them, are number one, knowledge is tricksy. Okay, now you think, you know, like Tolkien made that up for Gollum, but actually the word goes back to Shakespeare and that generation. But tricksy just means it's, it's like you don't know what to do with it. Knowledge is both good and bad. So Paul says knowledge is good, but, uh, but knowledge can also make you arrogant. It can make you proud, and it can make you condescending. So knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Knowledge is tricksy. Second point he makes is that theology is critical. So before you do anything, you make a decision, see how it intersects with what you believe about God. And so his point here is that before you start thinking about food that's been sacrificed to a false god, remember that a false god is nothing. There's only one god. And the, the other fascinating points he, he makes about our the, his theology and ours is that in the same t- sentence he mentions Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is, when we talk about that God, we're talking about Jesus. So your theology is critical, and what that means is that these idols that you're worried about, the food being sacrificed to, they don't even exist. So why are you worried about something that was offered to something that is non-existent? It's a nothing. So do you know that? Knowledge is tricksy, but second, theology is critical. Third point he makes is food is a non-essential. 
There are things that are critical when you ponder how you live out your Christian life. What you eat and don't eat is not one of them. And so Paul says food doesn't bring you closer to God. Uh, Food doesn't take you further from God. Food really doesn't matter. Now, Paul's not talking about nutrition because I know there's some nutritionists out there going like, don't say food doesn't matter. Yes, it matters. That's not Paul's point. He's not talking about nutrition. He's talking about spiritually, whether you eat ice cream or not, whether you eat pork or not whether you eat vegetables or meat, it it really doesn't bring you closer to God or take you further from God. So food is a non-essential. And the fourth point he makes is that freedom has limits. So yes, you are free to do whatever you want to do, but the, the limitation of your freedom is how it affects another person. So particularly another believer in Christ in this context. So don't just think about your rights and your freedoms. Think about how this affects your brother and sister in Christ. So that's a real quick overview of what Paul does in, these, in this text. And to, to, to learn more, you'll have to go to Contemporary and hear Pastor Paul or read my sermon online later. But there's more in the text than all of that. Those are his main points. What I want to do uh, is to sort of jump to the application and conclusion. Because the whole ice cream thing and the Buddhists is kind of a made-up thing, right? So what are the issues in which Christians disagree? And I started writing them. and it, it, The list comes slowly to me at first, and then once it starts building, it, it, it builds pretty fast. So what's on your list of where Christians disagree with other Christians about right and wrong? Let me start throwing some out for you. The use of alcohol. Involvement in politics on one side or another, and particularly support of this president or the last president or the next president. Observance of the Sabbath or the Lord's Day. Uh, What sort of chores do you do? How do you uh, observe the day? What's your commitment to church attendance every week? Travel sports and their impact on families and church involvement. Raising children, whether you send your children to Christian schools or private schools or public schools or home schools. A corporal punishment, speaking of children. Guns and gun rights, what kinds of film and art are appropriate for Christians. Environmental issues and your carbon footprint. What constitutes good stewardship and what really represents a waste of God's money and selfishness and greed. A whole range of issues about sex, marriage, divorce, abortion. Uh, devotional practices, fraternities and sororities in college and beyond, Masonic lodges and affiliations, appropriate clothing and modesty in wearing clothing, tattoos, and whatever else you and your spouse argued about this week. So it's, you know, there are lots of areas in which Christians just disagree about what the right thing to do. And some of you are going to say, wait a minute, Pastor Bob, you went so fast. And some of those issues are really clear in the Bible. And I just want to come back and tell you that the issue of eating food sacrificed to idols is very clear in the Bible if what you have is the Old Testament, and those are the people to whom Paul is writing. They don't have the New Testament. They don't have the Gospels. They don't have the the letters of Paul. So this was a biblical issue for some people. It's right here in the Bible. How can you disagree about that? So then what do we do about this? There's always in any church, I suppose, a yes and a no group and then maybe a maybe group uh, about any one of those issues. And culture shifts, times shift, but also churches shift. And people, especially in our time and day, tend to gather around others who agree with them on those issues. And honestly, if I preached any one of them on a very... uh, 
uh, radical and, and, and hard way, like a, a disciplined way, and this is the right way to think. If you didn't agree with that, and that was a regular part of my preaching, you wouldn't come to church here. I, that, that's how important these things are to people. Like, we assume that I'm supposed to, you know, agree with the preacher, and there are other churches around where I can find a preacher who agrees with me. So I was trying to figure out how to conclude this sermon, how to apply it. And I did something a little bit unusual today. I'm just going to read to you from the Bible to apply it. I'm going to jump a couple of chapters because Paul goes in a lot of different directions about this whole issue of freedom and rights. And then he comes back to his conclusion to this in chapter 10. And I'm just going to read it to you from the message because I can't think of a better way to summarize what Paul is saying when you think about whatever issue it is where you disagree with other Christians. So this is from the message, 1 Corinthians 10, beginning at verse 23. Just don't, don't look it up. Just listen uh, and, and, and hear and ask the Holy Spirit, where, where does this connect to me? Looking at it one way, you could say anything goes. Because of God's immense generosity and grace, we don't have to dissect and scrutinize every action to see if it will pass muster. But the point is not just to get by. We want to live well. And our foremost effort should be to help others live well. With that as a base to work from, common sense can take you the rest of the way. Eat anything sold at the butcher shop, for instance. You don't have to run an idolatry test on every item. The earth, after all, is God's and everything in it. That everything certainly includes the leg of lamb in the butcher shop. If a non-believer invites you to dinner and you feel like going, go ahead and enjoy yourself. Eat everything placed before you. It would be both bad manners and bad spirituality to cross-examine your host on the ethical purity of every course as it is served. On the other hand, if he goes out of his way to tell you that this particular food was sacrificed to a god or goddess so-and-so, you should pass. Even though you may be indifferent as to where it came from, he isn't, and you don't want to send mixed messages to him about who you are worshiping. But, except for these special cases, I'm not going to walk around on eggshells worrying about what small-minded people might say. I'm going to stride free and easy knowing what our large-minded master has already said. If I eat what is served to me, grateful to God for what is on the table, how can I worry about what someone else will say? I thanked God for it, and he blessed it. So eat your meals heartily, not worrying about what others say about you. You're eating to God's glory, after all, not to please people. As a matter of fact, do everything that way, heartily and freely to God's glory. At the same time, don't be callous in your exercise of freedom, thoughtlessly stepping on the toes of those who aren't as free as you are. I try my best to be considerate of everyone's feelings in all these matters. I hope you will be, too. Amen, Paul. So I want to lead us in prayer, and I mentioned earlier that one of the areas in which Christians disagree is in our politics and about how to support a particular president. And so some of you, maybe many of you, received an email this week from Franklin Graham asking us to pray especially for President Trump. And someone forwarded that email to me, and, uh, and I said, I'll be happy to pray for the president. I, I prayed for President Obama. I pray for President Trump. I will pray for whoever follows President Trump. But how do I make my prayer not about my personal politics, 
In order to go in that direction, I looked at the back of our hymnal, and you don't have to look there, but it's prayer number 10, and it's a prayer for the nation and includes a prayer for our leaders. This is 1941, just as World War II is breaking out, and this is how our reformed forebears taught us to pray for our nation and our leaders. Let us pray. Almighty God, Father of all humanity, who has commanded us to make intercession for everyone, hear us while we pray, that it might please you to look with favor upon our country, to preserve to us the blessings of an equal and impartial freedom, to bring in upon us the righteousness of the kingdom of God, and so to control us by your good spirit that we may use our freedoms not only uh, that we may use our freedoms only for your glory and the welfare and progress of humanity that it may please you to bless our president and all who bear office to rule their hearts in faith and fear and love that they may ever seek your honor and glory and that their example may be a power for goodness in the life of this nation that may please you to bless our lawmakers in all their deliberations, to give each one a right understanding of pure purpose and sound speech that cannot be condemned, and to enable them to rise above all self-seeking and party zeal into the larger sentiments of the public good and human brotherhood. That it may please you to purge our political life of every evil that would keep back the people from the highest measure of virtue and happiness, to subdue in this nation all unhallowed thirst for conquest and love of vainglory, and to inspire us with calmness and self-restraint and the will and desire to accomplish your will everywhere upon this earth. We ask you to hear us, O God, and pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen. Amen.